So we're going to continue our scripture reading in Acts chapter 6. Just realized I didn't look up the page number, and I apologize for that. Um, Stephen is a very courageous believer in the early church. He gets questioned by the high priest about the charges that were laid against him, speaking against God, the temple, uh, and against Moses. Then he delivers this sermon. It runs right through chapter 7, right to the very end of it. Um, I have to say that it was probably a lot longer than any sermon uh, Marty Gray might preach or I might preach. Uh, so we'd be glad not to be listening maybe to uh, Stephen this morning. I'm not even reading it. But we're coming to the very end of it. And at the came to the end of it, Stephen basically launches in to the Jewish hierarchy. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And what he has done is he has gone right through giving a potted history of the Old Testament. He creates common ground between him and the Jewish leaders. They know all this. They know all this. He wasn't telling them anything that they didn't know. But then he says to them, but you didn't understand it. And all the while you were resisting the Holy Spirit. And they get really, really irate. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. <clears throat> Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. <clears throat> so we're going to look at this this morning. We're continuing in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, Marty was preaching last week in the verses prior to this. He talked about the church, sharing the good news, the expectation of growth, uh, helping those in need, expecting Satan to attack us, and everyone aiming to play their part in the life of the church. And really that fourth point that Marty made last week, it comes into its own when you get down to verse 8 and, and following in, in Acts chapter 6. Expect Satan to attack us. And that's exactly what the church began to find uh, when Stephen was persecuted. It's interesting, uh, we have there in verse uh, 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What on earth did that look like? Angel face uh, is uh, sometimes used as a term of endearment. 
a sort of complimentary nickname for someone who has a face like an angel, looks very innocent one, a face that is beautiful or sweet or innocent. You'll also find angel face or baby angel emojis on your phone. And apparently it means blessings, uh, prayers, uh, angelic behavior. Um, they all go to show <clears throat> that the world in general, and sadly, very often Christians too, have a very poor understanding of what an angel is like. This little picture of a statue is maybe a typical kind of picture. There's one of the emojis uh, just there. Um, but in the Bible, and we kind of mentioned this on the morning of Boxing Day, in the Bible, angels are not sweet, adorable creatures. They are messengers of God who inspire awe and fear. Remember the Christmas story. You probably haven't forgotten that just yet. Mary, <coughs> Joseph, and the shepherds, they had to be told, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Because their angelic visitors were actually scary. Holy messengers come from the very presence of the holy God. And when true holiness approaches us, we shrivel. We shrivel. In Acts chapter 6 and that 15th verse, Luke records that as Stephen, uh, as the Sanhedrin looked at Stephen, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, we should not therefore have imagined Stephen to have the look of an angel face emoji. I think it has more to do with his fierce and enthusiastic character as a true messenger of the gospel. He's not a cherub. He didn't look like a cherub with pink cheeks and white curly hair or something like that. More like an expression that revealed his determination to speak God's word fearlessly and faithfully and forcefully and to the very end, whatever the results, whatever comes out of it. So what can we try to learn from all of these verses, the first ones we read, the second ones we read, and the great <coughs> long Old Testament overview that, that um, Stephen gives. Three things, and I'm hoping we can get a handle on this because it would take more than three things, but here's three anyway. The first one is, is simply this, the word grace, the word grace. What are we supposed to understand by this record of an angelic appearance? I, I, I suggest that certain descriptions of Stephen uh, give us some clue, and I put them up on the screen. Stephen was full of the Spirit and wisdom, full of faith, full of God's grace and power, the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. I think those are the key indicators of what he was like. And what do these reveal about Stephen? What they reveal about Stephen is his intimacy with God. What we read in verse 15, it has similarities with Moses when he came down from speaking with God on the mountain. His face shone, and actually it had to be covered because the people were afraid of the radiance of God reflected through Moses. Stephen was a man like Moses. He didn't just know about God. It's easy to know about God. You don't have to be a Christian to know about God. You can read the Bible and you'll find out something about the Christian God. But Stephen knew God intimately. 
I think it's significant that if you turn over the pages to the second passage we read in verses 55 and 56, that as Stephen is about to be stoned to death, he's about to come to the end of his life. He's about to reap the results or the rewards of preaching the gospel faithfully and unashamedly. He's about to be stoned to death, and he is permitted to see God's glory. He is permitted to see Jesus standing by the right hand of God, as it were, ready to welcome this first Christian martyr into heaven. Folk point out that he sees Jesus standing. Normally in heaven, Jesus is seen as seated at the right hand of God. Here he is standing as though he is ready to welcome this, this servant of his. Stephen knew God intimately because he knew Jesus. And it's all about Jesus. The Acts of the Apostles that we've been going through, it's all about Jesus, the continuing ministry of Jesus by His Spirit, through His servants, on beyond the ascension. Stephen was chosen to serve tables. His was a ministry of compassion, but he only did it because he was full of God's grace and power. He is described, therefore, in the same way that John spoke about Jesus, full of grace and truth. What we're actually finding in this passage is, if I may put it this way, Jesus flowed out of Stephen's life through the power of the Holy Spirit because there was an intensely intimate relationship. And it's more than an example for us. It's, it's an encouragement. It's a motivation to know God, to know Jesus intimately, that He might flow out through our lives. It was an intensely intimate relationship by grace through faith. And that's important because what these Jewish, the Jewish hierarchy were missing was grace and faith. And one of us, you know, sometimes in church, I can't speak about folk in Ravenhill, but I can speak from years and years of ministry. Sometimes in church, we create a distinction between those who do the spiritual things like Bible studies and, uh, 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 and praying and preaching and, you know, whatever, and those who do what <coughs> are quite often termed the more practical things like maintenance, making the tea, brushing the floor, doing the uh, sanitizing, which is a new addition uh, to the list in, in, in these days. That's an artificial distinction. All of those things are very important. Every single one of them. We cannot do without them. But Stephen destroys the artificial division. As he went about doing his practical ministry, his ministry of care and compassion so that the apostles could, could stick with the Word, the ministry of the Word. As, <coughs> as Stephen went about his practical ministry of care and compassion, what did he do? He spoke about Jesus because that's what got him into trouble. It wasn't all the nice things he did, bringing the food parcels or whatever, coming to visit the sick. Those weren't the things that got him in trouble. It was speaking about Jesus. That's what got him in trouble. Godly character. Someone has written, 
overflows into courageous witness for Jesus Christ, no matter what the results. It, it, it might not be getting stoned to death. It's highly unlikely uh, currently in, in, in our part of the world. But it might be embarrassment. It might be losing friends. It might be getting ostracized or, 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 or whatever. Stephen's Christ-like character brought out uh, the same hostility that Jesus suffered, even though Stephen was clearly gracious and wise and loving. We should not be surprised to see the hostility of society, the world around us, toward, towards godly, Christ-like people and the church. We're beginning to experience it. It's not going full blast. It's not even always that open. It's very subtle. But we're beginning to experience it. I suspect that in, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years' time, it will be much worse. And that's where what we might call uh, true grit comes in. The second observation, I've given another one-word title, just called it grit, grit. Um, what effect did this intimacy with Jesus produce? What we might call grit or true grit. And if you look up the dictionary definition of that, it says a toughness, a firmness, a resolve never to give up whatever the circumstances. This was Stephen. This was Stephen. An angel faced or not, the high priest got stuck into Stephen's interrogation. You are charged with speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Stephen spoke to people about Jesus' words as he went about his ministry. That's what we've seen. His accusers, and this gets a bit complicated, and I hope it's not too complicated. His accusers zoomed in on the words of Jesus recorded for us in John chapter 2, where Jesus said that if they destroy this temple, he would raise it up in three days. <coughs> now, we know that Jesus was talking about his own body, going through crucifixion and the resurrection. The hierarchy were interpreting it to mean that he was talking about the temple built of stones in Jerusalem. To a Jew, this was blasphemy. Why? Because that's where God lived. That's the place you went to to meet with God. There was actually no other place you could meet with God. This was God's house. And if it was destroyed, God could not meet with his people. And you see, folks, it was a total misunderstanding of the function of the temple and a total misunderstanding of the nature and being of God. Actually, what had happened with the Jewish hierarchy was this, that the temple had become a feature of idolatry. The temple was more important than what was supposed to go on there, and they could not allow it to be condemned in any way. In the speech which Stephen gave, and it's recorded for us in, in chapter 7, he made it very plain to the listeners that the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by human hands. He never did. And he does not now. 
What Stephen was doing by reciting the Old Testament and drawing these conclusions, what Stephen was doing was clarifying that Jesus has changed the Old Testament system. My uh, grandfather was a Christian, and uh, he was a brethren, so he wouldn't have <laughs> he wouldn't have had much time for Presbyterians. Uh, when he heard I was going into the Presbyterian ministry, he made a comment apparently to my mother, something along the lines of, "What does he want to be a Presbyterian for? Sure, they live in the Old Testament." Now, sadly, sadly, uh, he was only describing what some people observe. Not just Presbyterians, but very many Christians in some degree live in the Old Testament, and they shouldn't be there. They should use the Old, it is God's Word, but the Old Testament moves on into the New Testament. And that is what Stephen was saying. That is what he was talking about as he went about his ministry of compassion. He was clarifying to people in Jerusalem, Jews, he was clarifying that all they had believed, it was changing, not because it was wrong, but because Jesus now fulfilled everything that Israel had been looking forward to for hundreds and hundreds of years. Jesus actually Maybe the, the, the hierarchy didn't know how truthful they were. Jesus was demolishing the temple in Jerusalem, but not stone by stone. Not stone by stone. He was replacing in himself the functions of the temple, therefore making the stone building in that place obsolete. Now, there are, there are, there are groups of Christians all over the place who are expecting a, a temple to be built in the national Israel that we know today. It's not going to happen. And if it did happen, it's irrelevant because there is no need for a temple like that any longer. Jesus demolished the temple, spiritually speaking. Jesus changed the customs uh, Moses handed down to them. Jesus... Jesus was now the high priest. We don't need anyone else. He is the one who speaks for us in the presence of God. Jesus was now the one true sacrifice for sin. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not a believer and you're in your sinfulness, there is nothing I can do for you. And there is nothing anybody else in here can do for you. There is nothing coming to church can do for you. You need Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to kneel before Jesus. You need to confess your sin to Jesus. And you need to accept the salvation which Jesus has purchased by being the true sacrifice, bleeding, dying on the cross, rising again. Jesus has become <coughs> the mercy seat, as it were, of the temple. His own blood is the blood of the covenant, not the blood of animals. The glory of God, the old glory that came in the temple when God came to speak with the high priest. <coughs> the glory of God came down and rested on him and the Bible says, raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says that in Romans 6. You see, what Stephen was saying was that the temple is no longer the place where you see the glory of God. There is only one place, and that place is Jesus. Jesus. Folks, I'm 
at the risk of wasting time, because time is running out, I'm a bit like Stephen, I do go on a bit, but at the risk of losing time, can I say this to you, and it's not offensive, not meant to be offensive, God does not live in buildings. Doesn't live in buildings. I'll be very honest with you, in my whole 35 years of ministry, I used to shrivel and tremble and quake when people used to say to me about they were going to God's house. That's why some of us live in the Old Testament. We actually believe that a building where we worship on the Lord's day is God's house. It's not. It's not. When I first went into the ministry uh, and I had to conduct weddings, always terrified at conducting weddings, but one of the interesting things I used to note was, we don't see it now, but we used to get the, the marriage permission certificate thing. And what it said basically was this, that so-and-so the minister was given permission to marry so-and-so and so-and-so in the said Presbyterian meeting house. That's what we used to have in the Presbyterian church several hundred years ago. Presbyterians met in meeting houses and they were so right. They were so right. The meeting house was where they met together. They didn't need it to meet God because he didn't live there. Many a time in Scotland, our Presbyterian forefathers, they met God in the hedgerows. That's why they were called black mouths. They fed on blackberries as they were hunted by the state police, as it were. Let me just leave that with you for your thoughts. God does not live in any building whatsoever. He does, however, present himself with God's people when they meet in a building. And therefore, our buildings are important and we should look after them. Now, can you imagine how this might infuriate the Jewish institution of the temple as it infuriates the Christian institution of the church sometimes? Well, it did. And they took poor Stephen outside, out of the temple, out of the holy city of Jerusalem, and they stoned him to death. Now, I'm sorry. That's a bit of theology this morning, all about the temple and so on. Does it really matter? Could you not have done without listening to all that on this Lord's Day morning in church? Well, no, you couldn't because Marty asked me to preach on this passage, so that's what I had to do. Is this stuff vital? Should we really care about what we read in this passage or we didn't actually read the big chunk in the middle? Well, I think it is, and why? Because Stephen died for this truth about Jesus. He chose to go on speaking this truth when he knew that it would cost him his life. So he chose to die rather than not speak about Jesus' destruction of the temple, spiritually speaking, and his changing the customs of Moses. It is at least as important as the most important thing in your life and my life. Because if Jesus is not your temple or my temple, we are not saved. And we are lost. Secondly, the Jewish leaders killed for this truth. 
they saw it as so threatening. It was important to them. It was vital that they try to stop this. They saw it <coughs> as so threatening that it was better to kill, to murder a good man than to let this truth about the destruction of the temple be spread throughout Jerusalem and amongst the Jews. As far as they were concerned, the good news about Jesus, all of these things that are on this list of three, the good news about Jesus must be put down at any cost. Stephen loved this truth so intensely. He loved his Jesus so intensely that it filled him with that true grit, that inner resolve to stand firm for Jesus, even though it would cost him his life. So it is important because it asks us this question, have we got that spiritual grit, that absolute conviction about the truth of Jesus, that relationship with Jesus, so that if some state security police were to come in through those doors right now, as they do in many parts of the world, China, North Korea, the Middle East, the Far East, right now, would we stand fast, stand firm, knowing that Jesus holds us fast? Last thing, time's flying on. Last word, growth. Growth. Second point last week. The church is a community of people with an expectation of growth. Can't get away from this in the book of Acts. It's what it's all about. Jesus had said to his disciples, with this we're finishing, Jesus had said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Good. That's a good plan to grow the church. And then Luke records that on the day of Stephen's martyrdom, chapter 8, the first, first verse, on the day of Stephen's martyrdom, the day he was murdered by the Jewish hierarchy, became the moment to begin a widespread persecution of the church in Jerusalem. Doesn't look very hopeful. It must have looked as if it was going to be all over for the church, with people like Saul, who had become Paul, uh, hunting down believers and putting them in prison and probably killing others. Then Luke records these words <coughs> in it, chapter 1. <coughs> All except the apostles, wait for it, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It was beginning. I don't know if the church would have actually moved out of Jerusalem. You know what we're like in the church. We very often need a very sharp king in the pants to do good things for Jesus. I don't know. But this was the beginning. The gospel 
was moving out of its Jerusalem base. It had no need to be in Jerusalem anyway. The temple is no use to them anymore. And it's happening just as Jesus said. Soon the Christian hunter, Saul, would be evangelizing the Gentiles as the Apostle Paul. Soon all of Europe would hear about Jesus, and soon the gospel would reach a cold, wild backwater beyond the Roman Empire called Hibernia. And in 2,000 years, the spiritual descendants of those first believers in Hibernia would worship in Ravenhill Church on the Lord's Day. Isn't that absolutely amazing? All because a man called Stephen died for holding fast to the truth, died to get the church and the gospel on the move into Judea and Samaria on its way out to Europe. You know what? I think Luke wrote this under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to encourage us. Oh, you know, we can zoom in and it's so sad that Stephen had to die. That's not the purpose of the book of Acts. It's not the purpose of this passage. It's to encourage us. He gives us a note of what I call unparalleled certainty. <coughs> God's mission is moving forward. Listen, folks, what the book of Acts tells us is this, that God's mission is mission unstoppable. He just can't stop it. They have been trying. People have been trying. The opponents of, of the gospel have been trying for centuries to stop this movement, this Jesus movement, this movement of the gospel, this ingathering into the kingdom of God. And they have miserably failed. Miserably failed. Christian missionaries were all thrown out of China way back after the Second World War. And they thought, well, that's it. And we are told that it possibly is the biggest church in the world. You cannot stop it, not in any, any way. God does not promise that His truth will be welcomed by everyone, but He does assure us that His Word accomplishes the mission on which He sends it. Be encouraged in Ravenhill. Your Judea and your Samaria are just outside the door. Stick to the word. Uh, one writer just comments that this was, in this passage, one more step forward for the mission of God into a sinful world. Here's a question. We're, we're finished with this question. Think. Is there... One step forward with Jesus and the gospel for us, for you, for me, us as individuals. Is there one step forward, one more step forward as the church here at Ravenhill? Is that what we, what we should be praying for, Marty? 
that something happens uh, in, in, in the instruction and study which he will do, which will be a leading of the Spirit to take this church one more step forward in the mission of God. You need to be praying for that. Because that's what Acts is about, and that's what's expected. That's church growth. Is it going to be in these streets, in and around the Ravenhill Road? Is it going to be in whatever place we spend our daily lives? Is it going to be a step forward for the mission across the world? That's where the book of Acts always leaves us. And that's where this passage leaves us. Let me encourage you to think upon these things. The grace, the grit, and the growth. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we're um, in, in one sense very sad that this godly, godly, Christ-like man called Stephen, that his ministry was in many ways so short. But we are glad, Lord, that he looked up and he saw you standing by the right hand of the Father, ready to receive him into eternity forever. Father, help us to understand these scriptures. We have flown through them. Write them, Lord, upon our very hearts today and challenge us. Challenge us with the gospel today if that is what we need. We need new life. Challenge us, O Lord, with the gospel that teaches us not just to believe in Jesus, but to let Jesus flow out through our hearts and our minds and our words and our hands and our feet into the world around us in these streets and to the end of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.